The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from Master Dogen's 300 Koan Shobogenzo, Case 35. One day a student asked Master Totsi, what is the harmonizing of the ten bodies of the Buddha? Totsi got down from the sitting platform and stood with folded hands. On another occasion, a student asked, what distance is there between ordinary ones and sacred ones? Totsi got down from the sitting platform and stood with folded hands. Dalroshi's commentary. If you want to experience for yourself the harmonizing bodies, you must first leap clear of your habitual active consciousness and see that from the beginning there has never been anything that can be apprehended. Just see into that which is silent and still. Totsi stumbles and falls for the student, but they don't get it. If you want to gauge the distance between ordinary and sacred, you need to know that ordinary is each and everything south of the North Pole, whereas the sacred is all that is north of the South Pole. Haven't you heard it said, within the ordinary there is nothing sacred, but within the sacred nothing is ordinary. Again, Totsi stumbles and falls for the student, and again, the student misses it. The verse. Each and every one, all real, each and everything, all complete, where there is no affirmation or negation, there it stands alone, revealed. Good morning. We rearranged things a little bit this morning so that I can join a retreat on the Heart Sutra with uh, Pema Khandro, who's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher that has taught here before online. And um, I've joined her Sangha on several occasions as well. So she invited me to um, be part of this retreat. And so I'm going to scoot out after this talk so you can finish with some zazen and lunch and I'll go join her Sangha. She has a center out in California. So we, this weekend we were studying the precepts, moral teachings. And um, so I thought this koan might be a nice way to bring this to conclusion. This Ten Bodies of the Buddha, I couldn't find a lot of references other than a reference to the, to the Ten Bodies themselves, but no commentaries. Um, I'm sure they're out there, but I, I couldn't find them in my references. But they are the body of sentient beings, the body of lands, the body of rewards of an action, the body of Buddhist disciples, the body of self-enlightened people, the body of enlightened beings, enlightening beings, the body of completely enlightened ones, the body of knowledge, the body of space, the body of reality. And so, <clears throat> and, I, and I'm sure in commentaries there are teachings about each of those. But I thought if we look at that in a, you know, in a in uh, in terms of harmonizing the many bodies, however we list them. Master Dogen said to harmonize inner and outer, to gather in, to unify, to make peaceful. 
the many bodies, our thoughts, our motions, sensations, our aspirations and intentions, and what we're actually able to embody, ourselves with others, our views, conflicting views. How do we harmonize these many bodies? Last Yesterday I asked the question, if we all have Buddha nature, we do all have Buddha nature, <laughs> that is permeating, it's not a substance, it's not a thing, so even to say we have it, we possess it, creates some confusion, but it, because our language can't really speak to how, what Buddha nature is in relationship to this person. And so we use awkward language. But because we have Buddha nature, mind, body, heart, capacity, thoughts, everything, everywhere, and that nature is the nature of an awakened being, then why don't we live out of that? I mean, it's sort of an essential religious question, given that every religion recognizes that there's something out of whack. Right? There's something that's not working. There's some distance, there's some departure, there's some distance from something essential, something eternal, something absolute, God, nature, self-nature, and that we and that there is a kind of returning. There needs to be some way to return. The question of somebody raised yesterday, are we inherently good or evil? We certainly have the capacity for to do good, but we certainly have the capacity to do a lot of harm. And we seem to have a lot of enthusiasm for that. We're pretty smart. We know how to do stuff. We know how to solve problems. So what's with it all? Why do we turn against ourselves, right? I mean, you'd think if we would protect anything, and we do. We are very self-protective, but often in ways that don't actually protect us. And we can ask that question forever and answer that question forever. And yesterday morning we did start by looking at some of the Buddhism's profound understanding of the nature of mind and consciousness and how we develop these strong patterns, these underlying inclinations, some scars, these very deep, Dharoshi calls them habitual active consciousness. And it is important to understand that. And I said the reason that the teachings say it's important to develop right understanding because that's the basis upon which we practice. If we don't have a clear understanding of what the Dharma is teaching, we will base our meditation on something else. We'll base it on whatever understanding we have. So if we think thoughts are the problem, we need to stop them or get rid of them, that becomes the basis of how we meditate. And yet, at the same time, even have a cl- having a clear understanding does not release us from our habitual active consciousness. It doesn't automatically keep us from having attachments, keep these deep inclinations that arise again and again from arising. That's why we practice. And so, what is the harmonizing of the ten bodies? How do we harmonize all of these parts, these particles, these pieces, these ways, these experiences? And so, in Dharma practice, we study. We study 
the nature of causation. We study and try to understand how important and why intention is and why intention is so important, why the Buddha said karma is intention, and how do we put that to use in our practice? How are we, in essence, putting that to use all the time, but not always to good, to good ends? We have the bodhisattva precepts, we have the paramitas, we have just the basic sort of underlying you know, purpose or, or motive to cease from harm, to just cease from creating harm and to do what is good. We cultivate qualities that we all possess, patience and forbearance, so that we, we can sit with and practice and learn how to gain understanding and transform difficult emotions and feelings. We practice letting go. We practice non-attachment. The Buddha said all suffering arises from grasping. We have vows that we can take, and we learn how to practice those vows, how to renew them and return to them. We're taught that we need to reflect on our actions. We need to take responsibility for our actions when we don't act out of our best intentions and we create some trouble, and so we have practices of atonement. Most of us have had opportunities, have opportunities where Offering forgiveness would be very helpful. We have meta-practices to open our hearts, to extend compassion, loving-kindness, gladness and equanimity to a person, to people, or as the Buddha said, to just let it radiate in all directions. So we have all of these practices that are all essential. And as I spoke about yesterday, the way in which they are transforming the mind and body, the heart, consciousness, history. Dadaroshi used to said, when we practice, we are, we are transforming our karma in the present and in the past and in the future. Analayo said, when we maintain a precept, so just think of maintaining one moral teaching, one teaching to not lie, for instance. In order to do that, we have to keep it in our mind. We have to remember it and hold it in our mind. It has to be present. And he said, that strengthens our mindfulness. We must stay with our determination to abide by this precept. So we have to have the determination to keep doing that, to stay with that. That strengthens our persistence. We have to pay attention to the present moment, for that's when the decision, that's where the decision to either keep or break this precept is made. And so we're learning how to stay in the present moment. We have to remain firm in our cultivation of the sublime attitudes, the four immeasurables. These factors strengthen our concentration. Right? It's important to note that in the meta practices, like the four immeasurables, like sending and receiving, those are meditation practices. And so we see when we practice those how important it is that we have a mind that is stable and calm and concentrated, because then that practice becomes very powerful. And so that meditation practice is both cultivating compassion, it's also cultivating our concentration samadhi, and the teachings say it also has the capacity to bring us to insight. Analayu says we have to be clear about our motives for acting, and at the same time be sensitive to knowing how do we apply this precept in this particular situation. So we spoke about that. 
different ways of the perspectives, the more literal understanding, the more Mahayana perspective out of compassion, reverence for life, that they're not fixed rules, but they're not ambiguous. They're not just relative. It's not just well, whatever I think, whatever I want. They're based in a very, very clear moral understanding of how the world works and what would actually be helpful. So we have to be quick to see how to avoid an issue in which, for instance, telling the truth could be harmful. But to recognize that without then telling a falsehood. He said this strengthens our ability to reflect on the mind in the present moment. It intensifies our power of discernment. So he's talking about all the different ways in which just practicing this one precept is developing us in all these different ways. How all of this is working together. I mean, that's the beauty and the profound nature of the Eightfold Path. That it's all, there are particular ways of looking at how we live our lives, how we conduct ourselves. But they're also pointing to how all of these interrelate, how they work together, and how everything we're doing, every aspect of practice, when we do zazen, when we do liturgy, we do a prostration, we chant a sutra, we make an offering. All of these different things that we do in practice are changing our mind. And if we're not doing those practices, we're doing other things that are changing our mind. Right? It's like if we don't take refuge in wisdom and compassion and the sangha, we're taking refuge in other stuff. We're relying on other things. So all of those things are important. And at the same time, all the while, as Master Totsi once said to his assembly, if you ask me, then I'll answer you directly. But there is no mystery that can be compared to you yourself. So you who are seeking a mystery, some insight, some experience, some transcendent moment, he says there is no mystery that can be compared to you yourself. I can't teach you some method to collect wisdom. I will never say that above or below there is a Buddha, a Dharma, something ordinary or something sacred, or that you will find it by sitting with your legs crossed. Now bear in mind, he spent many, many years sitting with his legs crossed, and is still sitting. So what is he saying? He said, you all manifest a thousand things. It is the understandings that arise from your own life that you must carry into the future, reaping what you sow. I have nothing really to give you here, neither overtly nor by inference. I can only speak to you of all of, to, to all of you in this way. If you have doubts, then ask. And a student came forward and says, well, when it's not received overtly or by reference, inference, then what? And Totsi said, are you trying to collect wisdom? There is no mystery compared to you. It is the understandings that arise from your own life that we must carry forward. It is the understanding that we have in every present moment that we carry forward, whether we're aware of it or not, regardless of what those understandings are, whether they're true or not, whether they're skillful or not. And so the student asks, how do we harmonize all of these bodies? How do we harmonize all of these teachings and practices? 
How do we harmonize the 10,000 things to heal this sense that we have somehow become distant and apart from something essential, that we have somehow become fragmented and, you know, put into a hundred pieces? This sense of isolation, of alienation. Why is it that loneliness, the Surgeon General, General said, is our, one of our most grave current epidemics? What's going on? How do we harmonize the ten bodies? Totsi got down and stood with folded hands. Dalaroshi said, the old master does the best he can, given the question. <laughs> he says, if you want to experience for yourself the harmonizing bodies, we have to first leap clear of our habitual active consciousness. And see, from the beginning, there's nothing that can be apprehended. We don't get something from practice. Not in the way that we think. There is nothing that can be given, not in the way that we think. I remember during one Dharma encounter many, many years ago with Dadaroshi, I was sitting there, he was sitting here, and I came up and I said, I know you have nothing to teach me. He said, oh no, I have lots to teach you. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> we can understand that we have Buddha nature, that we possess this wisdom, that fundamentally we are compassionate beings, we have the heart of Kenon. We can have faith in these teachings, that's really important. But we cannot understand the direct experience of Buddha nature and Buddha wisdom and selfless compassion. As long as we're under the, under the weight of our habitual active consciousness. So I spoke about these samskaras. How is it that we have these patterns? We all have these patterns of reactivity that are not the result of a momentary conscious decision. I don't decide when I experience something to get angry. I just, I get ang- I'm angry. It's not the result of an action that I have asked for. How does that happen? And why is that so deep? Why is it so hard to uproot? And so we talked about the teachings about this as a way of understanding why practice is and needs to be what it is. Why we can't just blast in here, you know, wholehearted and sincere, and like go right to the heart of the matter, have an experience, a moment of insight, and all of those habit patterns, all of that conditioning, all of that karma is just result. Clean and fresh. Because we, even as we are gaining insight, even if the mind is calming, even as we are practicing, in all the ways that we can, with the utmost sincerity, that is changing. That is changing everything. And those habit patterns are still there. They still are strong. They're changing. They're not fixed. That's the whole point. If they were fixed, let's just go home and, I don't know, watch football or do whatever you like. We'd be wasting our time, literally, because nothing could change. But that's their nature seems unchangeable, sometimes seems intractable, seems like there's there's nothing I can do. 
But when we are practicing, it is being transformed. But if you build a very, very big fire that's burning very hot, and you stop feeding it, it will go out. It will cool, but it's going to take a while. And the impulse to keep feeding it doesn't go away. And so we do practice the precepts. We live, try to live according to the Dharma. And this brings us closer and closer. Sudan asked the teacher, why is this so difficult? The teacher said, because it's so close. And so every moment we're practicing, in a sense, we're moving closer. But we need to understand that actually it does not come closer and we're not moving towards it. It's not like that. It's not a thing. Fire doesn't step towards warmth. Right? Clouds cannot move closer to the sky. So it's just a way of speaking. And it is an experience. We feel like we are coming closer to something, to ourself, to our natural mind, to sanity, to being able to make a choice in the moment when anger arises rather than just be at the mercy of an overwhelming emotion. So there is a, a very real sense that something is changing, that we are, in a way, coming closer to something, or something is coming closer to us. Sometimes we experience it that way. We go outside, and the experience of a tree or a sky or a person is much more present, much more immediate, as though it's coming closer. But it's just the mind that is beginning to relinquish its habitual active consciousness the distance-making mind. And there's that sense of distance. That's really what we're practicing, the sense of distance. Like somebody asked yesterday about the sense of self that arises. You know, because all these teachings about how we grasp at the self and attachment to the self and the sense of a solid self is the source of our suffering. And so when the self arises, like that seems to be a problem. But it's not. The sense of self-arising is just something our consciousness does. We have self-awareness. It's what we impute into it. It's the way we misunderstand and, and, and project into it a sense of something that is me that inevitably then leads a sense of me that is here and you that is out there. A boundary is drawn. And so we're really practicing to relinquish that sense of distance. So when something arises and we judge it, that's creating distance. When we try and push it away because we don't like it, that's creating distance. When we grasp onto it because we don't want to lose it, that's actually creating distance. Because in our mind we're saying, you are not me, you are separate from me, therefore I must hold on to you, otherwise I'll lose you. It's like when you go out on a really cold morning, right, and you sort of gird yourself against the cold, right? Or we deny that we're getting older, or that we're sick, or that we're dying. It's not happening. I've told this story. I had an uncle who, all the way into his last breath, he was clearly dying. Everyone knew he was dying. He denied it. He would not acknowledge that he was dying. We can do that. But of course, doing those things don't protect us. When we gird ourselves against, we tense up against the cold, that doesn't actually make us warmer. It doesn't raise the temperature. 
When we deny that we're sick or dying, that doesn't keep us from being sick or dying. So it seems to protect us, but it doesn't. It really only delays our ability, our capacity to, to free ourselves, to understand. And so when we relax into the cold, actually just relax, let it in, when we completely accept our present state, when we accept our grief, our sadness, our fear, something is transformed. If that thing that we were trying to protect ourselves from had its own existence, we could do whatever we wanted, and it would not change. It would stay the same because it had its own separate being. But that's not what we experience. And we experience that all the time. Because everything is like that. Nothing stays the same. But we don't necessarily recognize what is right there in front of us. We don't sort of realize the nature of what we're experiencing. An old master said, when the host, you, transforms the guest, the thing that you're experiencing, then things cease to exist in the old way. So how does the host transform the guest? The guest actually is fine. They don't need any changing. What's being transformed is the mind. And really, all that means is stop doing so much. <laughs> stop creating a sense of distance. You know, duality says that in order to be free of whatever offends us, we have to make it go away. Right? And that makes sense if the thing has the power to be the problem. But we have to ask the question, well, where actually is the problem? Where is my suffering? Is it out there? When we free our offended mind of our discriminating impulses, then we are free of that struggle. That's why in the very first moments of learning Zazen, when we're learning Zazen for the first time, we are learning the most important, we're hearing the most important things we will ever hear, right? About how to transform ourselves and the world. But of course, we can't, at that point, we can't really know that, hear that, fully appreciate that. So what is the harmonizing of the ten bodies? Totsui stood with his folded hand, with his folded hands folded. So what is that? In that, is that is he right in doing that? Is that posture right or wrong? Is it enlightened? Is that an enlightened action? Is it deluded? In that moment, is it unified? Has he unified the ten bodies? Or are they still divided? Is he one? Or are there many? Only the one who stands apart can ask those questions. Only the one who stands apart can come up with an answer. How is it for the one who doesn't stand apart? How is it for the one who does not know? And so Totsi calls out and says, come closer to see. Enter into this whole everything. And then another student asks, well, what distance is there between ordinary ones and sacred ones? Totsi stands with his hands folded. Tadaroshi says, Totsi is a little lame, but he gets there all the same. (laughs) 
I think he says he's a little lame because he would like him to present something, present it in a different way. But Totsi is not wrong. What he's presenting completely responds to the question. What is the difference between ordinary ones and sacred ones? Somebody, we were asked, talking about the 10th grade precept, don't defile the three treasures. One understanding of that is to think that I, as a practitioner, am different from people who are not practicing. Or I, who might have some insight, is different. And different meaning a little better than people who don't have insight. And you can just keep going in that direction. That that actually violates the precept. It's a transgression to just have that thought. That because of Buddhist practice, that in any way separates us. It, it puts us into the sacred realm. You know, now distant from all the poor. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for those poor souls in the ordinary realm, but <laughs> I'm not there. That's a transgression. That's a profound delusion. And so we practice that very thing, harmonizing the ten bodies. If we don't do that, then how do we expect to live in harmony? Without, not with this body, the body that's sitting on your seat, but with everybody you meet. And not just two-legged ones. All of them. If we don't practice compassion towards ourselves, how can we compassion towards others? How do we think that's going to work? You know, I think about certain people in Congress who don't seem to come up with a lot of constructive ideas about how to make things better, but have a lot of ideas about how to take things down, tear things down. And I keep thinking, if everything worked out the way you wanted, what makes you think you would be able to actually create something good if you're not creating something good right now? Like, if we don't practice where we hope to be from where we are in this moment, what makes, we think, what makes us think we're going to know how to be that thing, be in that place, do that thing, if we're not already doing it? Dharoshi says, if you want to gauge the distance between ordinary and sacred, you need to know that ordinary is each and everything south of the North Pole. Sacred is all that's north of the South Pole. <laughs> when we realize that all things have one flavor, one nature, one essence. You know, that's where when, when you know, it's said, all is one. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? It always confused me, because it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm over here, you're over there. So how is all is one? And to me, it is a little confusing. Right? What is it that's all? What is it that is all one? Given that the world is just filled with so many things that are different and distinct, what is their non-distinctness? How are they not separate? It's their nature. That's why the the example or the metaphor of the ocean, you know, that self-nature that is the same, that is indivisible, indivisible, that is. Universal is the water. You're that water. I'm that water. Everything we see is that water. 
That's the use of that metaphor, is everything you see, anything, whether it's within you, it's a thought, it's a sensation, everything outside of you, whether you like it or not, whether it's beautiful or ugly, whether it's giving life or destroying it, everything is water. That's the nature. And then there are waves. And those waves arise because of certain conditions. Gravity, current, wind. Right? There are things that cause those waves to come into being, causing conditions. There are things that cause all of these different bodies to come into being. But you can't separate it from the water. A wave can never be taken away from the water. Like, we know that. We wouldn't even try. You wouldn't try to take a wave home with you. We get that. But we still see that they're distinct. And that there are waves that are distinct from each other. So it's a way of thinking about how could something at the same time be absolutely one taste, one flavor, one nature, and have individuality, distinctness. And that those two things are never at odds with each other. And that's true whether the ocean is calm. It's true whether the ocean is in a raging turmoil. Whether it's high or low, whether it's salty or fresh. And so we can begin to think about what does it mean that all things have the same nature? All, the thing with all is one is it doesn't really convey the sense of the relative truth. It doesn't recognize explicitly how and affirm the differences, which is pretty important because we have a hard time with the differences, right? We get very stuck on perceived differences that we solidify, we give a self to, we make permanent. And that becomes the basis for loving and hating, for aggression and violence. So we have to deal with it. And so this question of what is the dis difference, distance between ordinary and sacred ones is actually really rather important. Because our habitual impulses are so often, or maybe always, in some manner operating to include and exclude. And in the very manner of including, Right? In terms of whatever I include in my realm of concern, for instance, in that very same moment, I'm creating a realm that is not my concern. Right? You build a gate, anybody you let in that gate is inside. Everybody not in that gate automatically, by the virtue of that gate, is outside. So it doesn't really matter how generous we are at letting people in the gate as long as there's a fence. I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter. It can help, but ultimately, there's still a fence. And so we practice letting go of what we cling to. It sounds so simple, right? How could all of our suffering come down to that? And that's why, we, that's why Zazen is so important, because we can't just decide, okay, I'm not going to attach to anything anymore. If you doubt that, just take it up as an experiment. All right? Sincerely dedicate yourself to never attaching to anything ever again. And then give yourself, I don't know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds.
And as we let go, then we can move through ordinary worlds and sacred realms, positive situations, difficult situations. We can be with people, loving people, difficult people, and be recognizing all of those differences, but without hatred, without ill will. And that's no small thing. Because when there is a self, we inevitably take things personally. Right? So when we see something we don't like, we take that personally. We can take that as a personal affront. That which I don't like in you is messing with me. Right? It's disturbing me. And an unexamined mind doesn't see that you don't have anything to do with that, really. I mean, only in the sense that there you are, right where you should be. But I don't see that it's my mind. It's my scars, it's my clashes, it's my clinging. It's my lack of understanding, it's my lack of awareness that's creating that very strong sense of offense. And so, to paraphrase the Buddha, then we can practice being in a quarrelsome world without creating more quarrel. We can offer ourselves, really make our lives about offering something good without setting that up against what is not good. So Dairo, she says in the verse, each and every one, all real. Each and everything, all complete. And you know, when I talked yesterday about karma not being a system of justice or fairness, although justice is extremely important and something we should have in every society. It's not really what karma is about, action and consequence that comes out of intention. It creates or it conveys or we, we bring into it a sense of justice and fairness because of our perspective. And so for that reason, it can be hard to understand or to accept that each and every one is all real, each and everything is all complete when we see things that are so messed up. How could a ravaged mountain or a destroyed city, right? I mean, we think about it, we're just watching the, the utter destruction that we keep doing to each other and think it's going to work. It's going to work. This is going to work. This is how we get there. We just destroy everything. And that's how we get the world we want, the life we want. That's how we get to be the people we want. And so that's where going back to the ocean metaphor, understanding that the ocean, the water itself, doesn't know good or bad. It's just water. It just reaches everywhere. It's just water. It itself doesn't have a value. It's very important to us, standing outside, because it's life. But the water itself is just water. And that, in that, each and every one is all real. Each and everything is all complete. And so Totsi stood with folded hands, 
in a sense, I think what Dadaroshi was saying, pointing to, was, you know, to, to, to present that in a way is clumsy. He didn't have to do anything. But he got down off his seat, stood there with folded hands so that the student could clearly see this. But still, we don't necessarily see it because we're looking at it from the mind of over here. Within the ordinary, there is no sacredness. When we see everything as ordinary, as mundane, who was it? Was it Reagan or Bush who when talking about protecting the environment, he said, you know, you've seen one tree, you've seen them all. Who needs so many trees? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So within that mind of ordinariness, of things become dull and dim, there is no sacredness. Which then it makes perfect sense that the world just, the earth just becomes our supermarket. And attached to that supermarket is a dumpster. But within the sacred, and nothing is ordinary. When we see things in they are, as they are, nothing is ordinary in that way, in that way that it is dead, an object, something just to be used. And that's essentially when we let go, when we free ourselves of self-clinging, when we free ourselves of anything in any moment, we are stepping closer. And that's why, in practice, we have moments where suddenly what was ordinary becomes something else. We could call it sacred. We could call it beautiful. We could call it filled with wonder. We could not call it anything. You don't have to give it a name. But in that moment, you know something. You're experiencing something. And it's alive. And you don't need to ask anybody if this is true or not. So I'll end with adding a little bit respectfully to Dadaroshi's verse. Each and every one, he calls out to you. Can you hear? All real, all the easy, all the hard. What a relief to finally retire from the judge and jury's chair. Each and everything, he calls to all your kin, all complete. Welcome to the world of life and death. You were born for this. You know, if we think about that, how long have human beings been human beings? Well, as long as they've been human beings. How long as human beings have they been suffering, experiencing life and death? How long have they been experiencing sickness, old age, and death? It's in us. We know how to do this. When the Buddha realized Buddha nature, he was basically saying, you already know. You already know. That's why the teacher ultimately has nothing to give. That's why Totsi said, the mystery that you're seeking, there is no greater mystery than you yourself. There's nothing... He said, there's nothing basic I can say. I can say this. And then you have to take that and take it skillfully. So I appreciate it, all of you who are with us for the weekend. It was nice to have that time together.
and just to appreciate that that we can do this. You know, we can sit in this hall. We can engage these teachings. We can sit in zazen. This is what has come down to us. These are the gifts. We can care about our lives. We can practice our lives. Right. So as Mizumi Roshi often said, let us appreciate what we have, what we're in the midst of. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.